Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 11th, 2017. This is episode 2063 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a good one for you because you know what day it is. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time to hear from the expert council answering your questions, and I've got a great lineup of council members for you today. From Ben Falk, we'll talk about spring development and shallow wells. Doc Moans will talk about management of leg cramps. Brandon Todd will talk about developing a USB drive into a cryptocurrency wallet. John Pugliano, the guy himself, he will talk to us about dealing with debt and potential bankruptcy. Mike and Sue LaPreeze are going to get a special challenge today. They're going to talk about mobile homeschooling and special education requirements as well. Like living in a school bus while you're doing homeschooling? Yeah. And then dealing with some special ed needs as well. Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic, will talk about battery bank considerations for a van, including what I'm going to end up being a little tougher on than him is a very bad idea. And I'll tell you why that question probably didn't go to Stephen Harris, but as soon as you'll hear it, you'll go, oh, I know why he didn't ask Stephen Harris. He was looking for a different answer. Charles gives him a softer answer, but pretty much in the end the same answer. Uh, becoming a professional permaculture designer by Nick Ferguson. And my segment today will follow up on that, and I'll be talking about marketing, marketing yourself to what I would call an uninformed market. So many of you have these different niche businesses you'd like to go into, and marketing is a huge concern. If you don't get business, whatever you call yourself, you're not really that. You have to actually do it, right? So, you know, if you go out and market yourself as a permaculture consultant, you're in a pretty narrow niche. How do we do that How do we reach Joe and uh, Joe and Tammy Homemaker or businesses or things like that that would like the services of a permaculture designer, but they don't even know what that is? All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's hear from uh, our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the original Survival Podcast sponsor. These guys go back like they were a sponsor before they were sponsors. And what I mean by that is Safe Castle Royal and Vicar Antala were bothering me, right? We want to sponsor the show. I'm like, I don't have enough listeners to take your money yet. So when I got the show built up to where I felt comfortable taking sponsors, I contacted Vicky's like, it's about time. And they, they signed up. They've been with us as long as you can be, and they're still here. They are loyal to us, so be loyal to them. They have everything you could think of for your prepping needs. Check them out at safecastle.com. Next up, Bob Wells Nursery. Bob Wells has become my go-to source for trees, plants, berries, unusual edibles, you name it. They are a great company. They're located just a few hours to my east out in East Texas. They have an incredible selection of trees and plants and bushes and all that good stuff. I have hundreds of their trees and plants and bushes, etc., on my property. And I've negotiated with for you guys that are MSB members a 10% discount on everything you buy from them. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was in history. And we have, it is the year 43, we were up to now. I have two contributions today, one from Southpaw Ben and the other from David Verne. I have the Trung Sisters from Southpaw Ben. Let's take a look at that. Born in modern-day Vietnam, this pair of sisters were born to the prefect of Mei Li, which gave them good understanding of martial arts. As Chinese rule of Vietnam became increasingly oppressive, the husband of one of the Trung Sisters led a revolt against the Chinese, which resulted in his execution. In the year 40, the sisters were able to successfully repel 
a small Chinese unit from their village. They then assembled a large, mostly female army, which they used to almost uh, to take almost 65 citadels from the Chinese and liberated most of modern-day Vietnam, making themselves the ruling queens. However, this rule was short-lived, as this year, 43 AD, the Chinese sent a huge army under the experienced general who was able to defeat the sisters in a battle. There are multiple stories about how the sisters died, including that they vanished into the sky, committed suicide, or died fighting. One account suggests that the female army of sisters was defeated when Chinese troops showed up to the battle naked, causing the female army to disperse in embarrassment. Don't buy it. Don't buy it personally. My take by South Pa Ben. As these sisters were first successful resistance uh, against the Chinese after 247 years of being conquered, the Trung sisters were seen as heroes even to this day, with many Vietnamese celebrating the holiday in February to commemorate their deaths. And many streets and schools are named after them, the temples dedicated to them. Some historians use this story to suggest that before Chinese control over Vietnam, the Vietnam culture was a matriarchal one, and that having women rulers was not something seen as odd. I find it interesting how these sisters freed the country only to make themselves monarchs of it, and yet are seen as heroes and symbols of freedom because they died fighting for their country. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, I could say some stuff about why I think the whole concept of a whole female army taking over Vietnam is probably bullshit, uh, but I won't. I'll leave it at that for historians to talk about. But the concept here that Ben brings up, I think, like, well, they freed it, but then they, they ruled it. Yeah, that's how people that rule shit work. You go in under the name of freedom, and then you take over. And it's also how people work. See, it just, it, they don't it, the, the people, especially of this time, they never expect to like not have a ruler. They just wanted their own ruler, right? I mean, and there's something to be learned from that. People are so conditioned to believe that freedom is contingent upon the right person controlling them. So you're the right person controlling you, you're free, and if you have the wrong one, then you're not free. Well, how about when you have anybody controlling you, you're not truly free? Let's take a look at the invasion of Britain, this time for real, from David Verne. Claudius has been busy with reforming the legal system and stabilizing the empire after Caligula's disastrous reign. The problem is that he still doesn't have a great deal of respect from the Senate, The solution he and his advisors come up with is an invasion of Britain. A successful invasion of Britain would give him the credibility that came with a military victory and would be an achievement that not even the legendary Julius Caesar could accomplish. Claudius got the excuse he needed when a tribe friendly to Rome was attacked. Four legions and the 2nd Augusta, the 9th Hispania, the 14th Germania, and the 20th Valerie Vitrix, along with numerous auxiliaries, a total of 40,000 soldiers assembled in northern Gaul. Under the command of Aulus Palantius, a distinguished center, by the time the spring arrived, the massive logistics effort needed for 40,000 men, several thousand cavalry, and hundreds of ships were finally in place, but the invasion failed to start. Rumors began to spread among the men that nightmarish terrors and monsters waited for them in Britain, which for the Romans was a place beyond the known world. The legions refused to move, so Claudius sent his chief advisor, the freedman Narcius, to convince the soldiers to begin the campaign. He began a speech, but failed. Platius then stepped up and managed to convince the legions to continue with the invasion. After a delay of several weeks, the Britons are made up of many tribes, but the main leader, a chief called Carticus, uh, the legions defeat the Britons in several pitched battles and force surrender of most of the tribes. Platius invited Claudius to come to Britain to share in the glory of the victory, and when Claudius arrived, he accepted the surrender of 11 chiefs, 
Cardicus will escape to continue resistance, but by the end of the year, Roman, Romans are in complete control over southeast Britain. My take by David Verne. A delay in the military plans is almost always a bad thing, but it ended up helping the Romans a great deal. The Britons were warned a year before by friendly traders that the Romans were planning an invasion, and they knew that the Romans always began their military campaigns in spring. The chiefs raised their levies and gathered the southern coast of Britain to meet the Romans at the beaches. As the weeks dragged on, the tribesmen wanted to return home to their farms and families, and the chiefs disbanded their armies, thinking it was just a repeat of Caligula's invasion. And when the legions invaded, they caught the southernmost tribes unprepared for war, were able to establish a foothold, and the future emperor Vespian commanded the second Augusta during the invasion and will prove himself to be an excellent military commander. I guess my takeaway on this is let's look at this whole concept that we're going to be with in, in nuclear war with Korea tomorrow. Okay, first of all, I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you this. There's going to be no nuclear war with North Korea. It's not going to happen. They do not have the capabilities. It's all bullshit. Okay, now you got that. I'm not saying there won't ever be a war between the United States and North Korea and our allies in North Korea. That They won't come up with some drumbeat to go in and do it, and it's possible that they will. Okay, But to do it, you're going to have to have a massive logistical buildup. You can't just do this tomorrow. I don't care what the orange-headed uh, orange president says. It just doesn't work that way. None of this works that way. But I will tell you, I will tell you exactly how you will know when it's probable, not definite, but probable that we are going to go to war with North Korea. When they stop beating the drum about the threat they pose and they start singing the sob story about the people that need to be liberated, the oppressive actions of the regime, and how evil they are at a high level. Not a little bit here and a little bit there. When they start doing special interest stories on the nightly news about people that escaped, and they start talking about the total numbers of people in gulags and murdered, etc. When they start making that case, what they're trying to do is build up support of the populace beyond those who will just be reactionary to a threat that is bullshit. It is a bullshit threat. Now, why would the U.S. do this, though? Why would the U.S. do this? I'll tell you why. This is not about North Korea. This is not about North Korea. This is about every other nation that has the eye on eventually developing the capability to have nuclear weapons and be able to put them on missiles. Every other one. Because North Korea ain't going to do shit. North Korea is the... It's amazing that they're even able to have the shitty nukes that they have. Okay? It really is. It really, really is. It's, it's backwards and screwed up as they are. And there is a, there is, they're basically like a rusting hull of a ship that sooner or later is going to collapse on itself. There is no need to do anything there. But what the United States feels is that if Kim Jong, Blong, whatever the hell his name is, right, can give a middle finger to the United States of America and continue this program until he is more armed up than he already is, then Iran will say, might as well do it too. They're not going to do shit. And that's, that's the real reason there might be a war, but that's when you'll know. There'll have to be a huge logistical buildup. The real, the real like line that shall not be crossed in, in, in Korea is actually the, the, the DMZ, right? This is the real problem. The concept that they're going to shoot missiles at us is bullshit. Could they maybe hit Tokyo or something? It's possible. It's not as probable as the TV is telling you. 
But the firepower that they have that's, you know, 50 years old and older along the DMZ could reduce soul to ashes in a matter of hours, if not minutes. And that's been the case since very shortly after the armistice started. And that's the real worry, that you will see an unrelenting, hellacious type of campaign from the North Koreans, the likes of which we have not seen since the Korean War. Really, World War II, laying waste to entire cities and towns with no concern whatsoever for civilian casualties. In fact, no concern whatsoever for casualties, period, even on their own side. That's what the concern really is. The nuclear weapon is the way that North Korea feels it can make itself sustainable in that world because it knows that that play is actually running out. Like Their equipment is literally at some point going to rust to the ground. That's where they're at. But uh, just keep believing what the TV says. Keep believing that we're going to nuclear war tomorrow, etc. I'm going to worry more about my ducks than Kim Jong-dong shooting a missile at me. I'm sorry. That's just the way that I feel about it. And yes, I know it's un. Yes, I know. I just hit Kim Jong-dong. I don't care. I, this, is all, this is all nonsense. And, and please, please stop buying into it. Please stop telling me that we're going to die. I, I, I just... Ugh. And the real concern that I have is how easily led the American people are, because I'm already seeing people that are just drumming the war drums on Facebook, etc. They threatened us! They threatened us! You know, us invading North Korea because they threatened us this way would be like a 6-foot, 2-inch, 240-pound bodybuilder guy walking down the street, and some little kid about 8 years old points at him and goes, You're ugly and I can kick your ass. And then that guy just walks over and starts beating the shit out of him. Except in this case, the big giant guy knows if he walks over and beats the shit out of him, that kid's going to push a button and a whole bunch of other people are going to get hurt, even though he's really no threat to him. That's, that's, that's the simple analogy. Let's move on from there. Anyway, uh, let's go straight into it. Let's uh, start taking uh, your questions for the expert counsel. First one is for Ben Falk, and it's on developing springs and shallow wells. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question about the um, you know shallow water hand pump and, and basically spring development. Um, essentially, you're a good shallow water source is groundwater that surface water is not getting into that is ideally ab above your point of use so you can gravity feed it. Um, you, it sounds like you have a situation where you have lots of groundwater found by the post holes you made, um, but you also have an existing spring or, you know, developed, um, so or groundwater access shallow well so um basically you know i don't know where these all are on the land in relation to your points of use but i would think you would just want to use the developed spring slash shallow well because there's probably a good reason it was developed there and it's probably better than places that you're just finding water by digging post holes but you may want to develop uh, you know that kind of shallow well up higher on the property as well i don't know how much 
grade change you have or again where these things are kind of in plan view but um yeah you want groundwater you want as close to the surface as possible within reason you don't want shallow um surface water getting into it and you want it high in your landscape um it sounds like you have a lot of opportunities for that so i would just you know look at it that way you can pump shallow well water to your home for instance or to another point of use but you can't generally uh suck water with a hand pump more than about 25 to 30 feet uh, bison and a couple other brands out there are able to do that. i think there's a guy practicalprepper.com something like that who has a who who has a pump um that can go maybe 25 to 30 feet as well um but you can push water really high. I mean, you could, you know, use a mechanical pump, hand pump, and get water up from 100 feet below the ground, for instance. But the pump then has to be, you know, on the well and not like in the building. So it's much more convenient to have it inside, especially in the winter in a cold climate like you're in. So yeah, those are just some things to keep in mind. Um, make sure you have good grading around the around the water source so surface water doesn't get into it um and it sounds like you could develop other shallow wells pretty easily on that site although depends on the time of year and how wet it's been that you're finding water in a three foot deep uh post hole but that's pretty high water table and that could be problematic for a lot of things but um you know if it's a really wet time of year and you're finding that then i wouldn't take that too seriously because water tables can vary you know five to 20 30 feet even or more over the course of a year so um that water might be 10 feet lower in the dry part of year but again i don't know when you're finding that water whether it's the wet or dry time of year um which obviously varies from year to year as well with the weather so anyway good luck with it thanks Okay, next up I have a question for Old Dog Bones on dealing with the issues around having leg cramps, specifically at night. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with close to a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way plus an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Michael from Ireland, who writes, Hi, I'm looking for advice on preventing leg cramps in my legs, back of the thigh, and less frequently back of the lower leg, which I sometimes get when I get out of bed after sleep. It can be very painful and sometimes can sort of lock up and be difficult to straighten. It can happen to either leg a few times each month. Michael in Ireland. Michael, anyone who's ever woken up with a leg cramp knows how painful it can be. Leg cramps at night typically involve the calf muscles, occasionally the back of the thigh. Yet, it's possible to get these cramps in the feet as well. Some people get them just about anywhere in the legs. In most cases, however, such cramps are harmless, can be relieved, or prevented with some simple stretching exercises done regularly. Talk about that in a minute. However, if it's a persistent problem like yours and interfere with your sleep, it may represent other issues. 
Now, this is particularly true if you are having muscle weakness, swelling, numbness, or pain uh, that lingers or continues to come back with those cramps. That is a possible issue that should be evaluated further. Although the risk of getting night leg cramps increases with age is something we can't do very much about. Sometimes even your physician can't pinpoint the cause of why all this is happening. Dehydration, prolonged sitting, or not getting enough of certain substances like potassium, calcium, or magnesium in your diet can be associated with leg cramps. And so can certain medications, including diuretics, beta blockers, other blood pressure medicines. These are sometimes the cause of people getting leg cramps. Sometimes it could be related to another underlying condition, something like an underactive thyroid, that's called hypothyroidism, or a problem with the nearby parathyroid gland. Diabetes, other conditions like that could disrupt your metabolism and also cause leg cramps. Night leg cramps are sometimes confused with something called restless leg syndrome. And with restless leg syndrome, you feel this throbbing, pulling, or other unpleasant sensations in your legs. and have an uncontrollable urge to move your lower limbs. These symptoms primarily occur at night or when it rests. However, muscle pain is less common with restless leg syndrome than it is with leg cramps. So it depends on how much pain you're having. Another issue is swelling in your legs, and that can be caused by excess fluid accumulation. That's called edema, and that may feel like leg cramps as well. Besides stretching exercises, try gently rubbing a cramp muscle to help it relax. For a calf cramps, try standing up, putting your weight on the leg in question, then slightly bending your knee. If you're in too much pain to stand up, straighten your leg and flex the top of your foot towards your head. Applying cold or heat can also offer some relief. To relax tense muscles, apply ice or a cold pack directly to the area where you feel cramping. Applying heat with a warm towel or heating pad or by taking a hot bath or shower can also make you feel better by reducing muscle pain or tenderness. I seem to do better with heat myself. Prevention is possible. Staying hydrated, drinking water and other fluids with electrolytes like potassium others throughout the day, that may help you avoid becoming dehydrated. It can also help your muscles contract and relax more easily. It's especially important to replenish your fluids when engaging in physical activity and to continue drinking water and other liquids after being active. Doing light exercise besides besides stretching, riding a stationary bike for a few minutes before bedtime, that sometimes can help prevent cramps while you're sleeping. Now, choosing the right shoes, wearing shoes that have very poor support, that can cause leg cramps. And interestingly enough, untucking the covers to your bed. If you loosen or untuck the bed sheet and other covers at the foot of your bed before going to sleep, that may prevent leg cramps. Of course, if leg cramps are interfering with your sleep, you're having some of the things I mentioned, muscle weakness, swelling, numbness, or pain that lingers or continue, continues to come back, it's worth a trip to the doctor to get to the bottom of it. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, have you experienced the joy and satisfaction that goes with helping the elderly? Well, make an old man, me, very happy and yourself more medically prepared by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandboom.net. That's store.doomandboom.net. You'll be glad you did. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code off anything in the store, so use it to fill those holes in your medical supplies. Thanks again. Yeah, I, I definitely concur with uh, with Doc on hydration being one of the main things. That I, I see people that deal with cramps in, in many different situations, not just leg cramps. That That's one of the, the key things. And I would actually kind of take a moment here to tell you that let's, let's put the cramps aside. And I, I'll tell you that I think that a lot of health issues are either caused by or made worse by inadequate hydration. The average American, in fact, uh, today is walking around most of the time dehydrated. 
I mean, if you if you were a Star Trek fan, you might remember the old series, like Mr. Spock, Captain Kirk, the old one from the 60s, right? And there was an episode there. It was the episode they actually based the first Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Trek movie on. I got every nerd in this audience pissed at me now. Um, every every the first Star Trek movie on. Uh, where it was, you know, the Voyager satellite come home, and it, it was actually based on an episode from I think the first first uh, season of the original series, where there was this um, this like probe satellite thing called Nomad, and Nomad is pissed off because he can't find his creator, which the guy created the other thing that merged with it was named Kirk, so it thinks Kirk's its creator. Um, which is exactly what they did in the movie, which made really a bad movie worse. Anyway, one of the statements that this nomad thing makes is the Enterprise is infested with ugly bags of water. See, it's technology. It looks at the, the ship as the life form, and these humans walking around are need to be sterilized and removed from it, but it refers to them as ugly bags of water, which is kind of my point. Our bodies are mostly water. And when we begin to go into a state of even minor dehydration, it sets off all sorts of problems and health effects. And many systems that are supposed to function a certain way don't. Think of it like a car engine that goes low on oil, right? Certain places where there's friction points and all, even if it's not sufficiently low that it actually causes things to seize up, burn up, and it starts to wear down the system faster. And I think totally thinking about your body as a mechanical system and ignoring the the spirit, spiritual and biological components that are beyond our general comprehension is a mistake, but there are certainly mechanical components, and those things certainly do get damaged and break down. And water is, think of it like oil for humans, right? Like you, we need that for all the systems to function well. Another thing I think that really helps with your general health and certainly with cramps is having some sort of stretching, yoga, martial arts, especially like a soft style like Tai Chi or Qigong, something like that in your life. And you don't have to go out and take Tai Chi. I think it's a great Discipline, by the way, but it can be as, as simple as every morning when you get up, you know, you walk around a little bit, you kind of get your body moving, and you sit down on the floor and touch your toes, maybe do some hurdler stretching, do some laybacks, some arches with your back, um, do some general just stretching uh, like that. You could have a more organized thing, and then general mobility. Um, I find a lot of times I talk to people that have this issue with leg cramps. And I asked them, well, how much do you walk a day? And it inevitably is one of two things. Hardly at all or a whole bunch, right? Like constantly. And then the constantly may be a dehydration issue that is now making that exercise cause issues that result in cramps. But most of the time, it's they, they, they're very, very sedentary. So walking, I think, is a huge thing, especially if you're having cramps at night, walking in the evening. Once the sun goes down, it's not a thousand degrees out. Just, and I mean a half a mile, a mile, something like that. Relatively flat at a, at not a super fast pace, but a brisk pace. Not barely moving, but at a constant, you know, normal human pace. I think those things are not just good for leg cramps, but good for your mental health as a whole. And remember this week, we talked about dealing with darkness. Yeah, drink water, stretch, and move. That's one of the biggest things you can do to help you deal with darkness, depression, etc. as well. Uh, next up, I have a question for a cryptocurrency expert Brandon Todd on developing a USB drive into a currency wallet. Brandon, take it away. 
Hello everyone, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, here to answer another question for the expert council. So, this question comes in from Kyle, where he's basically wondering, how do I use an external hard drive as a secure wallet? I have a 250 gigabyte external hard drive that I use as a backup fi for files for my podcast. I was tossing around the idea of using Jax or a similar wallet that's not always connected to the internet on that drive. I've heard lately that Jax has some security issues, though. What are your thoughts? Thanks. From Kyle. All right. So I think what Kyle's referring to there is a while ago, maybe a month or two ago, there was some article that came out um, where some people had uh, found an exploit or a, I, don't, I wouldn't call it an exploit, but a, or I guess you could, but a bug or um, something to the fact that Jax wasn't properly encrypting their private keys. I can't remember the details of it because there's so many things that go on in this space that I'm trying to keep up with, but basically the gist of it is it just affected desktop users, um, and this didn't really affect mobile users, um, but it was mainly uh, an issue with the desktop client, so people that would download a standalone application for Jax on their computer, like a Mac or a desktop, like a PC. Um, and it is, it was, I mean, it was valid, it was a valid argument, but as I understand it, it was a pretty, it was still a pretty small risk, and there wasn't like a massive wave of people getting hacked afterwards that were using the desktop uh, client. I think there was uh, one or two or a few people that were claiming that this had happened, but the information was, um, was uh, there wasn't a lot of it, and it, it just kind of died off. And so um, I don't see this as a huge vulnerability, but I still stay away from the desktop um, application for Jax uh, for that reason. But um, anyway, I know there's a lot of people using them, and they're still, uh, they still haven't been compromised at this level. I am going to mention an option in here where you do use um, the Jax application, desktop application, but you would be installing it onto an operating system that you're going to run just off of RAM. So this is going to be an operating system that's not even going to... Um, it's not even going to be connected to your hard drive and your computer. It's going to be running off of a separate device connected to your computer, so it would be uh, a thousand times more secure than that. So uh, it's not a perfect solution, but it would definitely be more secure. So anyway, <clears throat> so these are great questions from Kyle down there in Tennessee. You know, I really love these types of questions because it really makes you think about security in a whole other level. This answer will be for the little more advanced computer-savvy users. I say this because I would rather someone use a slightly less secure wallet than lose all their funds because they didn't realize running an operating system off of RAM is non-persistent by default, meaning that all the info is wiped every time you shut down that, that OS or device. So, so what Kyle's basically asking here is, is there a good way to keep a cryptocurrency application or wallet such as Jax on an offline device like a hard drive or USB drive so that you can plug and play, hold on, <coughs> excuse me, plug and play when you want to access your funds, much like these new hardware wallets like the Treasure Ledger we hear about these days in this space. The short answer is yes. I found a decent link that gives you a good tutorial where you install an, an, an OS or an operating system called Tails on a USB drive. Then you install Electrum, which is a, a hardware, or not a hardware, a wallet application for, for Bitcoin and some other coins. Um, you install Electrum inside of that operating system on a thumb drive. It also gives you another option to use Ubuntu, which is probably the most popular Linux 
OS on planet Earth uh, next to Linux Mint? Well, these are, are fine options, and both OSs are really good. There's a different option I like even better, in my opinion. Even it, It'll be even easier uh, and will give you way more goodies if you ever want to surf the web anonymously. This would be just a two-step solution. First, downloading a live OS installer called Unibutin, then downloading an OS called Kodachi. Then you just run Unibutin and burn that, that Kodachi ISO file onto the USB drive, and voila! You now have an OS on a stick with Electrum already packed inside that you can take with you anywhere and run off of any PC uh, computer as long as it's as long as the bits match up. So, you know, basically if you select 32-bit system because you're, you're using a 32-bit machine, then you can only use other 32-bit machines. But if you're using a 64-bit machine, you can run this on other 32-bit as well as 64-bit machines. Not sure if this is a good idea or if you're supposed to do that, but I have done this in a pinch. But usually use 32-bit apps with 32-bit computers and 64-bit apps with 64-bit computers. Now for the question of using Jack's wallet on an external hard drive or USB drive. You can do this by just tossing it on an external drive and then accessing it when you want to plug it into your, your computer. But um, it's not as safe, like we talked about earlier, it's not as safe as putting Jack's on a stick or USB drive and then mounting it into a live instance of something like Linux Kodachi, like I just described. I will explain this as option three on my website. So basically, you will just create a live OS with, with called Kodachi, then download Jack's desktop for Linux, and then plug a separate USB drive uh, and save this Jack's app onto because yeah you're gonna you know plug a separate USB drive and you're gonna save Jack's onto this because everything you save or download on the live system will be completely wiped when you shut down. So you'll want to save all the seeds, password information onto another flash drive or piece of paper. So basically you're going to have, a, let's say you've got a laptop. You're going to have a laptop sitting in front of you. You're going to have it completely shut down. And then you're going to plug this USB stick in it while it's shut down. You're going to turn it on. You're going to hit F12 a bunch of times. Your BIOS is going to pop up. You're going to select it. And it's going to run this operating system completely separated from your potentially malware-infested hard drive, and then you're going to stick another USB drive in if you have two, hopefully you have, I guess you would need two USB ports to do this option, I should note, and then you're going to save stuff onto that USB. Um, so anyway, so, so you know, the goodies I was talking about with uh, options two and three is basically what you get when you run Linux Kodachi operating system. With Kodachi, you get a built-in free VPN and Tor onboard, so you can run your browsing through both of VPN and Tor at the same time. It also gives you the option to choose which country you want to use for your exit nodes with the Tor feature on Kodachi, which has been contested as some of the problems with Tor. There's privacy snobs out there that are like, oh, Tor is broken, Tor is crap, and you know, Tor still works pretty good, but it's not perfect, and, and the issue is with the exit nodes. So... Also, Kodachi comes packed to the gills with many other cool applications built with privacy and security in mind. This is one of my favorite operating systems out there, so have fun. Okay, to, to sum it up, I'll give you three different options that will be detailed over at my website. Just go to cryptoskim.com, select the tab TSP questions, then scroll down to today's episode and look for the description of this response. There will be links as well as uh, directions of how to implement all three options. Good luck.
All right, this is Brandon from Crypto Skims signing off. Okay, so my only ad there is that Brandon mentioned there'd be some links in today's show notes for some instructions to be more specific about how to do what he talked about. He did not include those links. I have an email out to him. I'm sure he'll get back to me with them, and I will include those links in the show notes as soon as I have them. They may be there by the time you're getting this, because I'm about halfway through production of today's show at this point, uh, and I've already emailed him. Uh, or they may not. They may have to be delayed a day or two, but I will get them, because I'm actually very interested in doing all this. I, I want to do this to learn from it and to have the utility of it, and I think it's really cool, and I think we just learned something way beyond cryptocurrency. And I think that's cool, and it's why it's great that we have a guy like Brandon on the Expert Council with us. Next up, I have two questions combined into one answer for John Pugliano, and they both really revolve around the concept of debt. John, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. Today I'm going to combine two questions that are on different topics, but the overall subject pertains to debt. And so I think they kind of gel together nicely. And so the first question comes to us from Dave. And Dave asks, is bankruptcy ever a viable option? Here's the details to his question. A few years back, Dave got a divorce. And as a result of that divorce settlement, he was hit with a big share of the debt, which was in excess of $40,000. Now, he's whittled away at that, and he's made a pretty good dent in it, but he still has close to $30,000 of debt. And this consists of unsecured consumer debt, things like credit cards, as well as medical bills. His long-term goal is to, you know, move on with his life, get himself a home that he can own and build equity in and to start to save for his life and his retirement. But this, you know, $30,000 in debt is holding him back. So, David, let me answer your question uh, in this way. As far as is bankruptcy ever a viable option, yes, it is. Bankruptcy is part of the legal code. It's part of the overall free market capitalist society that allows people to start over with a clean slate so they can wipe out past financial mistakes and have an opportunity to start over. In our country, in our system, we don't have debtor prisons. We allow people to get in over their head to get out of it and start over. And I think that's a good system as long as it's not abused. So bankruptcy is definitely a viable option. Now, in your particular case, I don't know if it's a viable option. And there's a couple things that go along with this. Number one, the laws on bankruptcy are very different from state to state. So you definitely need to talk to an expert. I would talk to a bankruptcy attorney, or maybe a couple of them actually, to get a couple different opinions. The other thing that is a little borderline in your situation is that although it's a lot of debt, uh, you know, it's still under $30,000, and you didn't break that down as to how much of that is credit card debt versus old medical bills, but, you know, I think the average credit card debt in America is somewhere around seventeen dollars or $18,000. So you may not be so far off of the average where a bankruptcy court would not want you to work out some kind of a payment plan. Also, what you didn't mention was what is your income, and obviously your income is going to have a big factor on your overall debt load. Something else to consider is that in a lot of states, medical bills can be negotiated or written off a whole lot easier than consumer debt. So that's something I would check on as well. So what I'm getting to here is that while bankruptcy is definitely an option, in your case, depending upon how much money you make, how much this is part of your overall debt load, and how much of it may be written off in terms of medical expenses, 
you may be real borderline and it might not be worth all the effort to go through bankruptcy because, you know, that just doesn't happen overnight and there are still consequences with bankruptcy. It isn't like you're just going to walk away from bankruptcy with no penalties and not have any dings to your credit report and, and you know, you're just going to be able to go out and get a mortgage tomorrow. So talk to a couple bankruptcy attorneys and check with your state's consumer protection department because you may be able to get those medical bills forgiven or at least significantly reduced. Now, that leads us into Greg's question about student loan debt and, more specifically, student loan debt that has gone to a collection agency. And Greg's specific question is, how do you know if you can trust a collection agency? Well, Greg, let me tell you straight up, I personally don't have experience with collection agencies because I've never had that kind of a debt problem. But I have heard the horror stories of people that have, and i got to tell you, from what I've heard, if half of the stories I've heard are true, then there's a special place in hell reserved for collection agencies. You can't trust anything they say verbally. That's number one. So everything they say has to be in writing. And again, from the horror stories I've heard, just because it's in writing doesn't mean that it's true. Now, in Greg's particular situation, his wife has over $30,000 in student loan debt. Now, Greg believes that this original debt had been settled to the tune of $13,000 several years ago by his in-laws and his wife's grandparents. They have some of the records, but they don't have them all. And so a key point of bringing up Greg's question here is that I wanted to make sure the TSP listening community knows when you settle a debt, particularly something with a debt collection agency, don't ever get rid of the paperwork. Never, ever, ever. And that's a lot easier to do now than it used to be because, you know, you can just scan this, email it to yourself and keep it in a folder somewhere in your emails, but don't ever get rid of it because there is no forgiveness on the student loan debt, right? You can't go bankrupt on it. And so if you get behind on your student loan payments, you can't just walk away from them through bankruptcy protection, and the credit agencies know that, and so they are going to hound you and hammer you, and what maybe started with even a small amount of student loan debt can quickly escalate when you start tacking on not only the interest, but then the penalties and fees for missing payments. These agencies go out and they buy up debt in the market, and they're paying pennies on the dollar for this stuff. So anything they can collect on is pure profit for them, that's why these guys are so aggressive, because it means so much to their bottom line. And where it gets real convoluted and hard to trust these guys is, your original debt might have been bought up in pieces, or it may have been multiple loans to begin with, and so you think you're dealing with maybe one collection agency and the entire debt, but the fact of the matter is there could be multiple agencies that own that debt that are going to come after you. And so you're kind of playing whack-a-mole thinking you knock down the debt from one guy, but then it pops up from two or three other collection agencies. Now, Greg, i got to tell you that this problem is not going to go away. Anytime you're dealing with a credit agency, it's like dealing with a cancer. It doesn't get better on its own. And the longer it stays around, the more fees and penalties and interest they're going to add to it. So your wife's credit rating is going to continue to be adversely affected, and that's going to affect her, you know, from trying to buy a car to getting insurance to, in a lot of cases, even applying for a job, they're going to check your credit rating. Now, there's a lot on the Internet out there about, you know, the Obama plan to forgive student loan debt. I think a lot of that's malarkey and BS, and you end up paying companies that don't ever deliver. So I wouldn't believe any type of business or nonprofit agency that's claiming that they can help you on the Internet. I would go directly to your state's business office or maybe even the attorney general's office in the state. 
And it's probably going to be a lot of bureaucracy. But again, this is like a cancer and it's not going to go away. So start there, start at the top, get feedback from them. And then at some point, you may also have to hire an attorney to help get you out of this. But don't go it alone. Don't take advice just off of a podcast. Be proactive and see what you need to do to take care of this. Because I promise you, the collection agency is only going to escalate it and make it worse. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I pretty much don't need to add anything to that. I just want to reiterate, if you're dealing, I don't care if you're dealing with a collections agency or a company that you owe the money directly to. When they're willing to make you any kind of a deal to settle the debt in full, you need to have in writing the following. If they're the company you owe the money directly to, then you don't need the first part, but a statement stating that they have full authorization to collect the debt in full, that they own the debt, they've purchased it, something like that. Something that says they have the full debt. They didn't buy a piece of your debt. Because that's what John was talking about with multiple agencies coming after you for the same debt. It's not that common, but it does happen. So that they have complete and total authority to forgive the debt or to accept total payment for the debt. Number two, the specific amount that they want to do that. And number three, the fact that they will accept it as payment in full for the debt, it will render the, the debt paid in full, and that it will be reported to the corresponding credit agencies that the debt has been rendered paid in full. And if they won't give you that, don't give them a dime. Don't give them a dime. And that's any debt. I don't care what it is. And on student loan debt, I've been amazed at some people, because I think student loan debt's a problem, but I've been amazed at some of the people that I've found like, are in the rear on their student loans, and you're like, well, what do you have to pay on your student loans? And it's like, well, $14 a month. Pay the freaking bill! Oh, my God, and that's my daughter-in-law I'm talking about. When they were, her and my son were trying to buy a house, and they hadn't paid on her student loans in like a year. And I got, cause she makes so little money and the, the amount of the loan, and all, she, she was not paying a $14 a month bill. Ah, and I'm not saying that's anybody that called in here or nothing. Just my God, you know, if you care about your, your credit and stuff like that, when it comes to student loans, make that minimal payment, at least make something. On a $30,000 debt, I wouldn't declare bankruptcy over $30,000. If I had to work as an Uber driver, Every single hour I wasn't asleep and not at my job for two years to pay off $30,000 worth of debt, I would do it. That's what I would do. Whatever it took. Odd jobs, side hustles, delivering pizzas. I don't give a shit. $30,000 sounds like an insurmountable number, and it sucks. But I'll tell you what. It will be a crucible that when you come out of it, you will be a stronger human being. And it will, if you do it, it will never, never, never ever, ever, ever happen ever again. And I wish I could do a good Winston Churchill because I would have said it like he would have. Never. And I, I can't do it, right? So, But I mean, seriously, it's that's reality. All right. So next question for Mike and Sue Laprise. This is on homeschooling on the move and homeschooling for children with special education requirements. Let's go ahead and hear from Mike and Sue. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel. Hi, Jack. Today's letter comes from Kean in Tomball. A two-part question here. My wife and I are currently pricing out building a school bus for a schoolie conversion and spending the next two to five years traveling the U.S. with our three kids, ages 4, 8, and 14. 
We'd like to know if you have any recommendations for a curriculum, especially online and low footprint. The second part of my question is, my 14-year-old has epilepsy and is in delayed special education courses. As with all things government education, we are extremely disappointed with his progress and how they are going about, quote-unquote, educating him. We lean far more libertarian slash conservative, and a lot of the Facebook homeschool groups have shown themselves to be a bit woo-woo for our likings and less them-focused, which we would prefer. Thanks again for all you guys and Jack do. Kean. Well, thanks, Kean, for, for your letter. Um, it sounds like you've got an exciting adventure ahead of you. Yeah. And you live in Tomball. I've got a daughter and son-in-law in Tomball, Texas, north of Houston. So uh, talking about curriculum. So we've done quite a bit talking about curriculum lately. But what I'd like to tell you is some of the stuff is seriously simple. So one of the things is introducing your younger children to reading. And there are uh, curriculum like and, and readings like Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons by Siegfried Engelman. Or What Your Fourth Grader Needs to Know by Edie Hirsch. Edie Hirsch does a series of what your child should know at a certain ages going from kindergarten through sixth grade. There are also apps. Ocean House Media has a bunch of apps that you can do that are like read-along apps where you can either listen to the, the stories or you can read along with the stories, or you can read the stories, and if there's a word you don't know, you can touch the word, and it'll read the word to you. Also, you're going to be traveling throughout the United States, and almost everywhere you go, there will be libraries. And you can use the libraries. Remember, there's no checkout when you're using the facilities. So while you're on the road, when you're in certain towns, check out where the library is, and take advantage of their facilities. Yeah, so the library is a cheap field trip. When we went to Avon, Colorado, Michael took the older kids up to a, what did you guys do? You took we went up to, up. up to a rugged mountain place where in the yeah. middle of summer there was a bunch of snow on the ground. Yeah, it was really cool. But the little guys and I stayed back at the condo, and there was a free activity at the library there where they had popcorn and a movie and a story time and a craft. So it was a totally free field trip for us. And I'm sure libraries all over have those and they've got, most of them have great websites. So you can use the library anywhere you are without having a card. It's really cool. So for writing, we're still, we recommend IEW. They have online teachers for older kids. They have a fairly easy program for younger kids that a parent can learn quickly And um, just build on that. As your child grows with their writing, you grow. The other thing that would be really fun on your adventure is um, having a blog or a vlog where your kids get to write little snippets. And you're like, oh, what's the story starter? It's like your life is the story starter. Your adventure is the story starter. You take a picture. You help your kid come up with a little paragraph or two about that. And um, anyways, so then for math... The, the adventure of math is in the travel. So now you can go to Costco and get a really ex inexpensive grade-leveled kindergarten, first grade, second grade book. They have them for about t less than 20 bucks, and they're pretty comprehensive. And then you can add lots of fun things. You can add dollars by having allowance. You could use the clock. Like when you're traveling to and from someplace, you've got the calendar and seasons that you're going to see along the way. And then, you know, measuring distances at the campground, 
um, mileage. There's all the math that happens in your life, and you just have to start thinking about that. How how do we use math every day, and how can I break this down for my four year old and my eight year old to really enjoy? It can also be an assignment for your fourteen year old to come up with a fun math activity for the kids to think about while they're traveling that day. Then Khan Academy again has a digital. Um, free access online. So on digital days, you could do that. And um, one of the things we recommend when people are first homeschooling and getting to kind of know their high schooler a bit is to not try to go where are you exactly in math, but get a consumer math program. So Math U C that we use has a consumer math program that um, we've used with kids. And it's just really fun, practical things, but it also creates conversation. Where algebra is not so good at creating conversation, but the consumer math creates the conversation and helps you build relationship with your kid. And then Dave Ramsey also has some、um, pretty cool high school, and it even has little kids. Budgeting things. So on your trip, obviously you're going to be on a budget, and you're going to want to have fun. So you teach your kids how to. I get this one activity, but I have to give up this one activity. So then,、um, history. Our history tapestry of grace has a an online digital access, and the cool thing about the internet, instead of having to buy all those extra books, you can find almost. All the information you need to complete the activities online for free. Now, that's if you want a history program. What we've noticed a lot, and watching tons of YouTube's, is、um, families go with math and writing, reading, are really structured kind of activity, and then the history and science for the younger kids. Is what they're finding along the way. So they go on a field trip and then they come back the next day to the campground and they say, you know, we went to Monticello, so now we're going to spend time learning about Thomas Jefferson and that whole surrounding. Or you do the study before the field trip. So it's really about where you're at for the history and science for little kids. You know, making a state notebook would be another really simple thing. I think that's in Tapestry of Grace Year Three. There's a really great state notebook in there. Um, science. You said you like STEM stuff, and for people who don't know, STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And for four-year-olds, that's Duplos. You know, so you know, we make things really complicated, and we give them these big names, and they're really quite practical. So your child's interests should really determine、um, what you're doing for school, and not your own. And it's kind of hard for parents, like, oh, I'm, I really love science, and my kid's really good at math, so that they're obviously going to like science. But sometimes it doesn't happen. So really, getting to know your child and listening to their interest, and then again, Con has some science. They have biology, astrophysics. You know, they have some really cool stuff on there.、Um, mostly whatever he's interested in, they throw on there. So science is all around you. So don't leave it out, but don't stress about it either. It's fun. Yeah, I want to talk to what Sue just talked about. Your interests, not necessarily being your children's interests. So we've got a very good friends of ours.、Uh, my friend Tom was a、uh, tennis pro,、uh, and not just a teaching pro. He taught on the ATP tour for years.、Uh, they have three children who are now adults, and all three children played college sports, and none of them played tennis <laughs> because their position was their dad was too intense when it came to te- tennis. If it was basketball for Nick, or if it was football, or if it was just other sports, it was it was cool for them.、Uh, so their dad later on said, you know, he wished that they would have played tennis, and he realized that he was just too intense in in his desire for them to play tennis. 
Okay, so another thing to do is get on YouTube and look up traveling homeschool families. There are tons of them out there. It was so fun to watch, and I told Michael, let's sell it all and you know hit the road. This looks really fun, but um, it's not where we're at right now. And it's just they're self-directed learners. These families that are on the road, they're teaching their kids to be self-directed learners, and it just keeps going. And it's like with the science. You know, making it so complicated. It's like science is about classifying, questioning, and discovering. That's all it is. And so, as you're walking along the way with your kid, you want to use the big words. When you're cooking, it's chemistry. When you're driving down the road, there's physics. There's these are all natural parts of life, but you're going to have to learn how those apply so you can start using those words. One of the things that stops kids from being interested in science when they get to high school is because they think I don't know anything about physics. When really, you know, swirling a bucket full of water is physics. And so teaching them those big words so that when they get further along in school, they think I've got it. So you mentioned Facebook doesn't seem to have a group that you like. But you know, make your own. Whatever you like, whatever you're looking for, send it out. Invite people. Ask them to invite people.、Um, one of the things I did earlier is I emailed this this family who asked the question, and connected them with a young lady that my older girls grew up homeschooling with, and her name's Nisi, and she has cerebral palsy, and she was in our co-op as we were、um, homeschooling about 15 years ago, and she just did a tough mutter run. And she had this huge team helping her, and you can see it at Tough Nisi. It's T O U G H N I S S I. And so I connected this family with Nisi. So if they need mentoring or encouraging, and、um, I asked Nisi, "Hey, are you already encouraging people? Because she is such a delightful person." And she said, "I hadn't even thought about it." So she set up a Facebook page called Tough Nisi, and、um, you can connect with her there if you're trying to homeschool and your kids are struggling. And、um, you know, Nisi's a twin; she was born second and didn't have enough oxygen. And so, that, her and her sister—it's just a beautiful story and an encouragement. If you're out there and you want to homeschool, but you think I don't know how I can do this because my child has these difficulties, and her mom was just a beautiful person too. Anyways. You can do it, and、um, you know the thing about having a handicap of any sort. On good days, you can just crank out the work, and on down days, you can rest. When you're struggling with brain function and learning isn't fun, you can just take a break and look out the window while you're driving down the road, or listen to an audio book. But the best part, the thing I love the most about homeschooling, is time together, researching the things that are interesting to your child. Uh, or that your child might be struggling with, and so if your child is struggling with something like epilepsy or anything, then you get to spend more time finding solutions to those reoccurring issues that come up in their life, and you get to see those issues happen. Like when your kid's off at school, you don't see that happen, and it's not as you can't understand it as well. But when you're at the store and you know they have a seizure and you're there, it's just being there helps you a lot as a parent. So you get to help them with ways to prepare for those things to happen again, and to look at adulthood instead of like, oh, I just have to get through high school, because that goes by in four years. And so you want to start getting your child interested in adulthood and how do I deal better with my situation as I become an adult? How do I have a healthy attitude about my situation as I become an adult, or maybe a spouse or a parent? And how do I best manage all of that? And you can read a lot about it. But you can also connect to actual people experiencing 
your difficulty that are not the experts, but they love to share how they've overcome. Again, this has been Michael and Sue Lepreze with HaloBySue.com. And don't forget, design the life you want to live. Back to you, Jack. I, I, I feel so blessed that we have those two as part of our council. I, I feel blessed for all of them, but, I mean, just awesome stuff and, and a great way of looking at things and an encouragement for more and more people. I think I've heard from people that said flat out, you know, before I listened to the show and heard Mike and Sue, I never thought I could do it. I wanted to, but I didn't think I could. And it wasn't like, okay, I listened to them, and now I know what to do, and I'm just going to go do it. It was, it made me feel like I possibly could, so it made me research what it actually would take and evaluate my life and figure out, yes, I can do it, now I'm doing it. And that's that's incredible, because if we want to strike a blow for liberty in this country... The more children we educate at a higher level in our own homes and communities than the government programs and their indoctrination centers, the better. And I know for some of you that maybe are new to the show or whatever and don't have maybe enough of a frame of reference, I might sound like crazy conspiracy talk or something, but, but folks, if you look at the modern education system, it is a system of indoctrination largely preparing children for a society that doesn't even exist anymore. It, it teaches obedience and compliance and how to be cogs and machines. And, and there is a, a time and place where we have to make a stand. And one of the few things that we really, you know, I'll tell you, it's not as easy to homeschool in some other countries. It's one of the, one of the big freedoms that we still have in this country. And to me, it's part of not the political party when I say this word, republicanism. Of course, Republicanism, we have our member states uh, that are components of the super state and each to make up their own rules. But that, that, I think, is largely misunderstood today because what it does is it creates a mobile population. If, if Arkansas does something really stupid, people in Arkansas might move to Texas or Oklahoma or Louisiana or Tennessee or something like that, just a, a neighboring border state, to escape that stupidity, which incentivizes everybody to do the best that they can. Well, we can exercise Republicanism in education. You've told me that I cannot move my child from this failing school to this better school over here. Okay, fine. That's like an international move then, right? I can't get a passport for that. I'll just withdraw them. I'll see to their education, piss off. And if you are going to see any improvement in, in public education, it will be because of homeschoolers. You're either going to see the crash and burn that I predict of, of, of the government school system eventually, or they're going to go, holy shit, we better fix this shit, because if we don't... Because the reason they've been able to do it for so long, they have a freaking monopoly. And they don't think people will do it. But imagine, imagine I'll, I'll tell you right now, we have their attention. We have the That's why they're starting to slander homeschooling and slander charter schools and slander private schools more than ever before, because we have their attention, Right? Right? First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, and then you win. That's paraphrased, but I think it applies here. Next up, there's a question for Charles Sandville, and you're going to know real quick why the person sent it to Charles instead of Stephen Harris, even though it's about a Stephen Harris battery bank. Charles, take it away. What's up, TSP? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com answering your car-related questions. This one comes in from Aaron. He says, hey, if I want to install my Stephen Harris mobile battery bank in a minivan, is it possible to run cables to the roof without drilling holes? If it's not, 
How might I best secure and hide them? Background, I'm planning on building a mobile battery bank and using either a hitch-mounted cargo carrier like the Stowaway 2 cargo carrier or a roof-mounted rack, provided that I can find one that is both enclosed and can support the weight of batteries and equipment. The roof-mounted option would be preferred, apart from accessibility, so that the weight is spread more evenly and so my car doesn't get any longer than it already is but I'm guessing the wiring wouldn't be as clean or as easy as just running a cable to the rear hitch. For the record, I'm driving a 2016 Kia Sedona. If you've got any other thoughts or insights, they would be welcome as well. Cheers, Aaron. Uh, Aaron, so good question. Basically, we're trying to decide, do we want to mount the amazing Stephen Harris mobile battery unit on the top of our car? or strap it to a trailer hitch and bolt it essentially to the back of our car. Let's talk about your specific question first, and that's routing or running our wires from the top of our vehicle down to wherever it's going to go, under the hood, I assume, probably to the vehicle battery, or whatever else you're going to add in that may be needed as part of this mobile battery bank. Is it possible to route these wires in a way where you don't have to drill holes? Yes, it's possible. Okay, um, it is definitely possible. Is it necessarily recommended or the best? Well, probably not in my opinion anyway. You could, I'm not saying you should, but you could run them down the front of the car, kind of along the landing of the windshield, over the cowl trim and under the hood. This is doable and it probably won't cause any risk of maybe wires rubbing or, or damage or anything like that but it's not going to look very awesome. You could spruce it up. You could put it in some split lube tubing and tape it up really nice and make it look better, but you're still going to have, you know, depending on how big this wiring pack is or this wiring harness is, you're still going to have a wiring harness ran down the side of your windshield. Not something I would want to do on my car, but in a pinch, if you had to do it, you could do it that way. Drilling a hole in the roof of a car seems really scary, right? But it's really not that big of a deal. Think of every vehicle out there on the road that has a roof aerial. Well, there was a hole drilled in the roof and wires ran for that. That's a little bit different because it makes it actually really easy to seal the roof antenna or roof aerial when it's installed. If we're essentially running a loom through the roof, it gets a little bit more tricky to seal. If I were going to do this, I would probably do it somewhere near one of the mounting points for the roof rack, the one that comes on the car, or the roof rails that come on the car, that would probably be the best place. There's grommets, of course, that you're going to need. You're going to have to seal it up. I would, in addition to using a grommet, I would probably use some sealing silicone in order to really, really, really get that sealed up. So it's possible and you can get it sealed where it will not leak. I mean, sunroofs are added after the fact and most of them are it's sometimes good or better than uh, than factory sunroofs are. So you can do it. You just need to make sure you're very thorough in sealing it using the proper grommeting, using the proper looming or wiring. And then again, I would probably put a small bead of silicone around it to seal it up even further. Like you mentioned with mounting it on a trailer receiver, well, that's quite a bit easier. There's tons of grommets in the floors of cars. You could pop the factory grommet out put a new grommet in with a hole in the center or something that'll seal, and you don't need to seal that quite as much 
as you're going to need to seal drilling a hole in the roof of the car. So you can do it. it it's going to require a lot more work than I think maybe you're thinking. If we're drilling holes in the roof, that means we're dropping the headliner down. That means on a minivan, you have A pillar, B pillar, C pillar, D pillar. All that's coming down. You're working near airbags. Most modern vehicles are going to have side curtain airbags, so you could be somewhere near there. If you do this before you touch a drill bit to the car, you need to get the headliner out of the way and make sure that you're not going to be drilling down into maybe an airbag igniter or something really, really dangerous. So word of caution, again, before, before, before you touch a drill bit or a punch or make a mark where you want to drill a hole, make sure that you have a clear vision of the entire roof inside of the vehicle and you're not going to drill down or up, whichever way you're going to drill, into something really, really bad. Now, let's sort of break away from the question specifically and talk a little bit about putting a battery bank on the roof of the car or in the back of the car. I'll be very honest, and I might lean even more to the more conservative side of this than maybe some others. I don't love either one. I don't love the idea of drilling holes in my roof of my vehicle in order to put you know, however much weight, maybe 100 pounds, 150 pounds, I don't quite know what this battery bank setup is going to weigh on top of the car, even in a cargo carrier that could hold that much weight. I don't love that idea. I also don't love all the time having 150, whatever, 200 pounds strapped to the back of my vehicle either. And again, lengthening it, like you mentioned, I don't love either one of those options. Both present kind of interesting slash maybe dangerous or things that give me concern. If we mount this extra weight on top of the vehicle, now we have one, a cargo carrier on top of the car. So our fuel economy is going to be reduced. Those carriers really cut your fuel economy pretty hard. Not to mention we have all this weight on top of the car all the time. Think about what may happen in shifting, what happens if you're in a collision and all that stuff slides forward and you have a you know 40 pound battery, even if it's bolted down, it may break through that bolt and can come right out of that cargo carrier. I realize that's a worst case scenario, but before we start modifying our cars in these kind of ways, we need to take all of that into account and make sure we're not creating a situation where we can increase the likelihood of someone getting hurt in the event of a collision. So I don't like the idea of putting all this stuff on top of the car and creating an extra projectile. Let's say you rear-end someone, of course on accident, that battery breaks through, goes through the back window of the car you hit, and injures or kills someone in that car where they may have been fine otherwise. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to you know, fear-monger doing this, but think about worst-case scenario before we start doing these things. Moving to the back in the cargo carrier, I'm a little more comfortable. It's better. I still don't love it either. Again, think about the risk in a collision. If someone rear-ends you now, now they're pushing that battery bank all up into your car. You know, it, would it be fine? Probably. But think about what could happen as batteries explode from being impacted and what that could do to maybe a, a bystander or something like that. So these are very out there possibilities, but there are possibilities. What would your insurance company do if they found out you had all these batteries strapped down or, you know, permanently mounted? Because having them in the trunk is one thing. Having it permanently mounted in your car is a completely different ballgame. 
So, Aaron, before you go these routes, think about these kind of things. From a pure standpoint of ease of doing this, I think the trailer hitch or the trailer receiver one is a better way to go. Um, but even then, I, I, that has some negative. That does carry some negative. Not quite as much as putting it on the roof. I really do not love that idea. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. It's, it's your, it's your world, man. But, um, I would, I would not be in love with, with doing that if it were me trying to build this battery bank. Something you might want to look at in that car that you drive is a rear well. You could potentially build something that you could install in a, in its own box and have maybe a quick connect or something where you have a junction and you can unbolt it really quick cap off the plugs that are in your car and just take the whole thing out. If you build this box in that rear well, of course you're not going to have that area as cargo area. You won't have that area to fold your third row seats down, but you could build a really trick wood platform or something, even, you know, get some discount laminate flooring and make something really nice to cover it while it's installed. And then, you know, if you did need to fold the seats down and you knew that, you could take it out before you did that. That might be a better route to go, in my opinion, than strapping it to the roof of your car or bolting it on the back. It may increase the cost of your batteries because, you know, do you want to put these golf cart batteries in the back or do you want to step up to something like an absorbent glass mat battery? Uh, either way, if you do this inside the car, make sure your venting for your batteries is correct. There are plenty of cars that have batteries in the interior of the vehicle and they have a little vent tube that goes out to the outside of the car so as the battery off gases that vapor and that that stuff that nasty stuff goes outside of the car rather than in so in the world of installing this outside of a toolbox on a truck you need to be really really careful and really examine every possibility that could happen worst case and best case for me, before I make these modifications, I always like to say the phrase, what's the worst that can happen, and then try and play that scenario out to decide, is this a good modification? Is this a bad modification? What would be the consequence if I strapped you know, 150 pounds worth of stuff, and I may be exaggerating that, that weight, but what would happen if all that stuff came crashing out of the case and caused some kind of damage to somebody that wouldn't have otherwise happened? So... I wish that there were a better solution and hey, maybe someone out there can start designing something that mounts to a trailer hitch and is impact resistant uh, and would hold up in that kind of uh, that kind of environment or a roof rack or something like that. Um, just make sure you're playing out all the scenarios in your mind before you go this route. Jack TSP, thanks so much. Keep the questions coming. If you want to check out more of my stuff and videos, head over to humblemechanic.com and you can also follow me on all the normal social platforms, of course. Guys, have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you again soon. You guys know why it wasn't Harris, right? Because if I would have, and I would even have sent it to Harris, because it would have been like, I'll do my best, Stephen Harris. You are not going to do that because it's going to be a flaming ball of acid, and it's going to kill everyone. That is dumb. Don't do that. Would be Stephen if I would have sent this to him. My blood pressure's up from doing that now. That would be. That, that's why I'm occasionally told, Mr. Harris, who I love as a friend, you need to move to a state where medical marijuana is legal. That that would have been. Now here's my response. That's really a bad idea. And don't do it. I don't not love it. I hate it. I think if you mount um, heavy batteries to the roof of your van, if you get into a wreck at any significant, you know, m speed. It is a, is a probability you're going to tear it open like a tin can, 
It's going to go flailing through the air. And the legal liability alone, not just your insurance not covering the damage, the legal liability if that goes through somebody's car and kills somebody is huge. Putting it on kind of a rack, like a, you know, like a, a drop rack that attaches to your trailer hitch, um, don't love that because it's going to be a real pain in the ass to move if you build like a, a significant bank. And how do you open the damn doors in the back of the van? So either something like Charles was talking about, like kind of a well-based design thing or something like that might work. Um, my personal preference would be if you're going to have a van to maximize the interior space. It has a lot going for it. And I would look at getting myself a really good small trailer, and I would build a battery bank in that trailer. I would build basically, I would run power from your generator, uh, your alternator on your, your van properly underneath the chassis all the way out the back. And just like you have a, a pigtail plug-in for uh, your trailer for the lights and things like that, I would have a second one that plugged in and you know charged your batteries. And I would also, of course, get a good quality AC-powered uh, charger. And then whenever I had that um, trailer parked somewhere, I would put, run power to it, and I would set up something where I could have that charger protected. I would keep it on, you know, basically on an intelligent charger, the way Stephen teaches you to keep one, you know, charged in your home. And I would design that trailer so that it could carry other things that I need. And here's why I say that. If you're going to be using significant power on the road, you're going to know that you're going to be doing it. We are not building these battery banks so that if North Korea nukes us with a EMP blast, which ain't going to happen, um, and we're out on the road, we have a Faraday cage around our battery bank, and we have mobile power because our vehicle was grounded by a chain dragging from our bumper, right? That's not why we're doing this. So what are the – like I have one of these systems in the toolbox of my truck. When do I use it? I use it when the power goes off at the house and I don't want to go get my generator, and I don't think it's going to be off for very long, and I want to do something like just turn the TV on or something like that, and I want to test my preps with it. I use it when I go camping. And if I ever fulfill my dream and find my little off-grid piece of property for my second property, and I have a little cabin or something that's off-grid, when I go there, I'll pull up and plug in. And I'll have basically the batteries with me so that you know they can't be st stolen or looted or something like that. In all of those instances, I would know that I'm going to do it. The other option would be, I have seen people build some pretty damn nice uh, mobile battery banks Basically, just using a, a rolling toolbox type of configuration that could be loaded into the van whenever you wanted. You could build a pigtail system for that that would allow that to charge while the vehicle's moving. Again, you get an AC charger to go with it. You should have that with your vehicle battery banks anyway. Uh, I won't go into why today because I don't want the show to go too long, but there's methods and things that you can do with that that, that makes that advantageous, so that should be part of your standard kit anyway. And uh, that way, whenever you're where AC is available, you can charge your bank. When it, you, then you have something mobile. And then you have something that when you sell that vehicle, it's not attached to that vehicle. See, one of the things I really love about my battery bank system in my truck is it is mounted in a toolbox. And I can pull a couple batteries out so it doesn't waste a damn much, disconnect the electrical leads, take the bolts off of the toolbox, pop toolbox comes out, next truck pop right in. All i got to do is run the wires from the, from the, from the battery terminals back. It's really easy to remove. You bolt something to the roof, you don't have that anymore. You don't have that anymore. 
And, and I think Steve goes maybe a little bit overboard with the concept of like mounting them in an SUV or a van. I think you can mount batteries. If, you, if, you, if you're bolted to the frame and you're in a metal box, right? I, I, it's as safe as anything else that's in your vehicle. But I think he's right that a lot of things that people like theorize in their head could create flaming balls of acid and lead. And that's not what we're trying to do. So I think it's a bad idea. Not just I don't love it. And I will tell you, don't do it. Don't, I, think it's a ter I think it will destroy the resale value of the vehicle. I think it's terrible. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Um, but even I won't go Stephen Harris level on it. Well, I guess I did, but just for fun. Anyway, uh, next question is for Nick Ferguson on becoming a professional permaculture designer. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with another answer for the TSP community. Remember, you guys can send questions for me on all things permaculture, homestead design, plant propagation, and small livestock, lots of other topics. My question for this week comes from Josh, and he's asked, um, Nick, How do I follow in your footsteps to become a permaculture designer? I'm graduating Jeff's online PDC here in a couple weeks and have a few clients lined up that I'm offering a free design in order to gain experience and portfolio. He's in the Houston area just uh, uh, north of the Metroplex in the fastest growing suburban region in the state, but I'm also just minutes away from farm and ranch operations. After these free design clients have been completed, where do I start? I know I can obviously advertise on Facebook and Nextdoor, but what recommendations do you have beyond that on gaining clients? What is the best strategy on pricing services? I was thinking of doing a tiered system. Depending on the needs and wants of the client, any other suggestions would be greatly appreciated. I'm sure there's a great market here as I can only find a single permaculture designer in the entire region, much less the city. He's created a website, thistinyfarm.com. And plans to put his projects online as well as host some informational and educational content. It's in its infancy, but you can check it out if you'd like. I'd love to teach others. Uh, I love to design systems that help heal and regenerate the earth, but I have no idea about marketing. Thanks, Josh. Well, I'm sure Jack will chime in with his thoughts on marketing. And let me tell you, Jack is the man when it comes to marketing. I'm one of the last people to ask advice from on marketing so i'll be listening to this episode to hear what jack has to say <laughs> uh as for the other questions um to follow my footsteps you'll i don't know need a couple decades of experience working with ecosystems and systems thinking <laughs> i'm just messing with you all kidding aside i'd say just keep practicing and learning at every opportunity you have to improve and sharpen your skills. I'd make it a habit of journaling your observations on your local ecology and weather. Um, you know, get things, get books like, uh, insect identification, plant field guides, devour as much botanical information as you can, collaborate with as many people in your region who have been working in that field as you can. You know, people that are into permaculture and otherwise. You'd be surprised at how many people will be able to teach you something really useful when you start talking shop. I'm talking about, you know, arborists. I've learned so much from just old arborists who've been doing this for a long, long time. You know, even though they support some methods and means that I don't like, they have a lot of knowledge. Um, as for starting to make money at it, I'd start small 
with something like this, your reputation is going to end up being a big deal. So if you screw up, you should be able to make it right. So don't get in over your head. So, you know, don't take on a big project that you don't have the experience to back up. It's always best to make small mistakes when you're learning and developing that skill set. As for the more practical aspects, what I'd focus on were, you know, were I in a larger metro area would be to look into your landscaping licensure requirements. If you can start out a small business and later on launch a landscaping company, you may be able to develop a very nice business installing your designs if they're slanted more towards conventional aesthetics. I'm not talking about rows of boxwoods and azaleas sprayed with insecticides on a regular cycle, but more along the lines of lawn with segments of the yard designed to be both functional, productive, and boost the curbside appeal. Because let's face it, you're going to get way more in business and be more likely to succeed in business if you can meet the needs of more normal American homeowners. Permaculture is a very niche thing, and I guarantee there are more people out there interested in a landscape design that will be both productive and protect their property values. So you should check out my buddy uh, from Florida, Pete Canaris with Green Dreams is his company. And he may be able to give you some tips on that front. He started with a conventional landscaping and yard care business and morphed it into an edible landscaping and ecologically sound landscaping yard care company. So for pricing, you know, personally, I charge based on the time I devote to a project. A project. So... I price like any other blue to white collar professional and charge by the hour. So projects that will take 10 hours are priced at one tenth of the project that might take a hundred hours. And of course it scales. The way I do it is I scale my, my cost down with the larger projects because I get more work done in a shorter period of time with a larger project than I would with some smaller projects. There's more, uh, footwork that has to be done with a small project. So I charge less on a big project than I would on an equal amount of time of a whole bunch of little projects because it's just it's less work. So that's my take. I just focus on doing a fantastic job. Put your name out there. Ask your clients to share with their friends and neighbors. Word of mouth means a lot. So if you do a really good job and your clients are willing to say that, you know, recommend you, then that's going to do a lot. Uh, and remember that people don't spend money as easily on things that they need compared to things that they want. So if you can keep that in mind, adding things that each person wants versus what they need will make it much easier for them to decide to put in the effort and time to make it happen. And what really matters in these is having something to show for it a few years down the road. A lot of people you know, seem to act like they want this, but they don't really want to invest the time and effort to make it beautiful and make it productive. So putting in those things that the person wants will make it much more likely that they're actually going to put in the effort down the road to maintain it and keep it looking nice. I hope this helps, Josh. For more helpful homesteading and permaculture content, check out my blog that hosts my podcast over at homegrownliberty.com, where you can find out all about me. You can find all my podcast episodes and a bunch of articles on building soil, gardening, raising insects for chickens, lots of other things like that. And you can also take a look at my Patreon page over at patreon.com forward slash homegrownliberty, where once we reach a certain level of support... 
I will begin filming a practical PDC type of a course. Thanks for all the support, everyone out there in the TCP community. And thanks for the great questions. Keep them coming. Do good things. Well, Nick said he's going to turn that over to me for the marketing component. And, you know, he actually hit some of the most important things. One of the things I think that holds back anybody that wants to be in, in the world of permaculture professionally is their insistence on the use of the word permaculture. So there's a, a rule in marketing. Actually, there's hundreds of rules in marketing. And when I say rule, there's like opinions and theories, and then there's rules. Okay, and rules we don't break. If you do break them, you have consequences. You will always have a consequence. And one of the rules in marketing is we do not use words that our target market doesn't understand in our primary messaging to our target market. We do not use words. Just repeat after me. We do not use words that our target market does not understand in our marketing to our target market. Now, you might think, but Jack, what I, my target is actually people that want permaculture design. That is a target. It is not your primary target. I am well out of the world of search engine optimization anymore. I know the basics, and I've done what I've done. And I've, you know, When you build a site and you do content daily for 10 years, a lot of things really start to take care of themselves at a certain point. You can focus on your business more than the marketing of your business, and it's, it's nice to be in that state. But you know, I still know what to do, so I went out and did a little bit of brief keyword research It just, you know, in, in people looking for terms. And if I compare the traffic and how many people are looking for, what did I do here? Uh, permaculture consultant versus landscape consultant, it is not even remotely close. Permaculture consultant, when run on a graph in comparison to landscape consultant, is flatlined at the bottom. It do, you can't even tell that it does anything. Um, now, does that mean that no one's looking for permaculture consultant online? Uh, no. But it means that the market for landscape consultant is much bigger. I'm not suggesting that you market yourself as a landscape consultant. Uh, Nick mentioned you'll find out what you have to do to be able to call yourself that in your area. Some it's really simple, some it's really complex, some you need, you know, it's, 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 it varies very much by locality. But I'm saying in your web-based marketing, you sure as hell might want to use the word landscape consulting and landscape consultant, even if you don't market yourself that way. And I think the lesson here is your target is people that want their property improved in a way that will provide them with better joy and hopefully good eating. Okay, It's not people looking for permaculture consulting. Here's the, the fundamental reality about the world of permaculture. We are full of broke-ass people. We really are. I would say at least half of people that call themselves permaculturists are dead-ass broke. A quarter, a quarter of them are far enough along that they can do most things for themselves. And a quarter of them are informed and knowledgeable and they have some disposable income and they want somebody to help them. And that's a good thing. And I would certainly want people in there. I would certainly want to talk to those people if I was going to go with full-time consulting. Okay? But you've taken a tiny niche and you've taken a quarter of a slice of that niche. And then you have to ask yourself, how many people would like their yards to look better or their small acreages to look better? 
And the number's huge. I mean, Homestead Consultant has more traffic than Permaculture Consultant. And it's not much, but it's there. But I think you're in the same position. Like, it's a lot of DIY types that already know these terms. And they, they, they get into wanting a consultant when they get into something that they realize they're a little bit over their head, which makes it tough to get your feet wet because you'll be in over your head when most of the informed permaculture people are in over their head and need your assistance. You need some stuff under your belt. So I would look more toward things like edible landscaping, natural landscaping, you know, um, natural backyard design, natural front yard. I mean, things like that. And these are just ideas. I'm not saying, like, put these down and start building, like, content pages for them. I'm saying, like, start building your marketing around, your marketing story. And remember, marketing is telling your story. And effective marketing causes other people to tell your story for you. We now call that viral marketing. But that's really all it goes down to. You want to tell a story that's easy enough to remember and compelling enough that someone that hears your story, whether they buy from you or not, will tell your story to somebody else. So we do our duck eggs. Can't keep them in stock because of that's that's it. We don't even really have a heavy web presence. Yeah, I'm number one for Dallas duck eggs and Fort Worth duck eggs because I did my SEO voodoo, what I still know of it, and, and that was pretty soft target, pretty easy to do. And we get some customers from that, but in the majority of people we get, you know, we get a person that finds you and they're a chiropractor and they like your product's great and they buy a little bit of it. But every time they get a customer in to their clinic, And that person says, you know, I, you know, they, because chiropractors always talk diet. I, I would, I want more eggs in my diet, but I have a sensitivity to them. Oh, there's these people over in, in, in Azel area that have ducks and they have great eggs and they have a lot of, to where you start getting more people from that one source than you can even handle. And, and that's because it's an effective story. We do all natural, the ducks, you, see, you can see pictures of it. And then people repeat that story. And, and is, that's really effective marketing. So I might put together a package. Like let's say, let's say for some reason, TSP went away. Like some something took it away from me, and I had to come up with something to do with myself. I don't know that it would be permaculture consultant, though it's certainly certainly something I can do with my knowledge of heavy equipment and things like that, and bids and takeoffs. It's certainly something I could do. I would probably put together more like a couple packages, though. You know, like, I would look around and say, what is the average lot size of the person with enough disposable income that I want to approach them? And I would come up with four or five stock designs. And I would say, we can install this for this much money. Here's what it'll look like when it's done. Here's how we do it. And, you know, I would use... You know, day labor to do things like mulching and stuff like that, etc. And I would get a few of those under my belt. And I would start developing a business process around that, saying, well, can I talk to your friends? Will you recommend me, etc. You know, and I, you, you, you could come up with a design that includes an annual garden and a design that's all perennials and a design that's all ornamental. That doesn't have a single edible in it. You tell your market what it wants. And you come up with a few variations of it to accommodate the average lots in your area. And you come up with some standardized pricing. And you, you give people the ability to say yes easily. So this is more sales than marketing because at some point you got to get in front of people to do this. But that could be as simple as going door to door. Hi, I'm, you know, look really good, nice looking vehicle, nice company shirt. I'm the owner and I'm out in your area today. 
doing some other work. It's lies, it's bullshit, most people know it, but it does kind of give them the idea that maybe you are a real company. Um, because I was here, I just noticed your yard, and I thought there was some real potential in it. Here's a couple different types of designs that we do. We, we, what we do is we install stuff in your yard. We don't use any chemicals. And it allows you to have basically food produced in your backyard for yourself and your family. Or come up with something like that. Right? And, and then just get a few under your belt. I think another really awesome idea um, is Nicholas Bertner's Landscape Assessment Course. I think that is a great idea, and the tool that it comes with that allows you to generate a landscape assessment document by filling out forms and clicking a button and then saying print. What that would let you do is simply do a couple of them for some people for free, and then when you go talk to somebody and they're like, well, you know, anybody can do that. Well, this is what the basic outline is. But the first thing we're going to do for 99 bucks or whatever, and you sell one, you've got your money back on the course, right? We're going to do a landscape assessment of your, of your landscape. Here's what one of those looks like, and put an 18-page report in front of them. We'll do that first, and that's $99, but it goes towards the, the installation if you want the installation. Can we get started? When can we get started? I'm available Saturday to do this assessment. Or will that work? Right. See, these are basic sales techniques. Like, you actually ask for the order, right? Like these are the things I think that are just missing in, in the world because that's how landscapers get so much daggone business. And if you, I, I would, I would love to know. I, I don't know what the number is, but I'd love to know the number of people in America today that are earning a living from landscape design. I bet it's tens of thousands. I bet the market's that big, and I'd like to know the number of people that are truly earning a, a living today is a permaculture designer slash installer in America today. I bet it's not 200. I bet it's not 200. And I bet I know personally 30 to 40, and I still bet it's not 200. That are actually earning, not they have a website and they say that they do it, right? That they actually earn a full-time living from the actual installation and design of permaculture systems. It's not something they also do. They don't earn most of their money from teaching PDCs, and they also do design, and they do 10 design projects a year that make them 10 grand. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about designer, installers, overseers, project coordinator type, the way that a landscape development company works, earning their living that are truly permaculturists. I bet it's not 200 I would be shocked if you could give me a list of 200 and I could go down there and check every single one of them and they all earn a full-time living. Like if they didn't do anything else, they could still basically eat every day and keep a roof over their head. So that sounds glim, but it's not. It's not because there's a lot of organic landscape designers and landscape consultants, etc. that do everything organically. So people want permaculture they just don't know the word permaculture so let's not overuse the word permaculture now it doesn't mean you don't have a page on your site completely dedicated to permaculture that says you're a permaculture consultant that operates in the states of x y and z that's that's not saying you don't do that that's just saying you don't make that your frontline marketing that's such a niche that it's likely that you can very easily learn a little bit of seo And that subpage on your site, if someone goes permaculture consultant Atlanta, Georgia, and you happen to be in Atlanta, Georgia, you can own that. So you grab that little niche. You don't ignore it. You just, that's that 
that's that one extra one. Because I, I mean, I've dealt with so many people in this that'll even tell me they want to pay me to do consulting for them, and I'm like, I don't do that, and I'll refer them to somebody, Nick, or depending on where they are, maybe somebody else. And when I follow up, I'll find out, you know, one in five, two in five, actually go through with any level of a paid engagement. And, and you know, part of it might be the people I'm referring to them don't have a good sales process, but I think a big part of it is they don't want to pay for it. Because they don't understand what they're paying for. You know, that, that that's really what it comes out. They don't understand what they're paying for. But a person will pay somebody to take a live oak tree that you can buy at Lowe's for 30 bucks and dig a hole in their front yard and put a great big volcano mulch thing around it that's just the dumbest thing, the worst thing in the world for the health of the tree, stake it in the ground with some cables, and water it in. So they'll pay 300 bucks for that. And people do it all the time. They build stupid little, you know, stone brick islands that make edging a nightmare and what have you. And then they'll pay somebody to come cut the grass and blow the stuff off of it with a blower. So people will pay for people to do stuff in their, on their, on their property in their lawns. So all you have to do is say, did you know you can have this? Did you know it could be like this? And I think it makes a lot of sense to start figuring out things like what are design elements that work in suburbia, like pergolas or gazebos or decks, and to reach out to these other professionals because you don't want to be in that business, especially getting started. But if you want to go, well, if a person has money and they're like, I want to go full on, and you go come up with a design that has decking and all this other stuff, and they say, well, I want to do it, Well, great, you go get a price from your subcontractor, you throw 15 points on that portion of it, you bill for your shit, and you go, here it is, let's go get going. I need a deposit of X amount, and we'll get started. Make sure your subcontractors, you subcontract for shit like that, make sure they have a good, solid book of business and good reps. Seriously. Because a lot of those guys, I'm telling you, we've beat up on contractors on the show before, but I'm going to tell you what the real problem is. They take more work than they should, Because the work always comes in bursts. Then they can't handle it when it's in a burst. And when they go into a lull after that, many of them have burned through the cash flow that they took on the deposit for the next bit of work, and they have no money for the materials, and they bail out on the job. I've seen that happen more than once. Or they're just, well, I'll be there Wednesday. Well, I'll be there Thursday. Well, I'll be there Friday. Well, I'll be there Monday. And then Monday they show up. Okay, If that is directly with the homeowner, a lot of times that can be worked out. When you're in between those two, it's not comfortable. So you have to have, when you have partners like this, it's not, I need you to be here Monday. It's, I'm, I need to be able to give you a project, have you give me a solid price on that project, and I need you to be able to commit to me what your start date is, and I need you to make that start date. If you're in doubt, make it the next day. That's the kind of conversation. And that will build a network because those guys are in people's backyards all the time. So th those are kind of some starting points. I think you really need to think about the framework of the business, what you really want to do. What do you mean you want to be a permaculture consultant? Do you want to consult with farmers? That's actually harder, in my opinion. In my opinion, the sweet spot is the people that live in houses that are about $100,000 more than whatever the median income housing in your, your area is. So somewhere that might be a $600,000 house, down here it's probably quarter million. You know, about $150,000 is about the average people spend 
on a house in this area. It's up a little bit right now from all this insanity, but it's still really where it's at, about 150,000. So 200, 250,000, those are people that bought more house because they could afford it. They just could they just could they didn't buy what they what they could afford. They bought more because they could afford it. And those people are going to be more open to doing stuff. A lot of people in entry level housing, they bought that house, they know they're going to turn it in 5 years. Anything you do there better be able to show them how it's going to increase the resellability of their home. A lot of times people are in that one tier up, they're not going anywhere. They're done. At least in their head they are. So now they want to start really thinking about settling in. You know, when people start putting in-ground pools in and stuff like that, those are people you want to talk to. They're setting down roots. So that's kind of more how to think on it than how to market it, because I would still say, even though the site looks like crap, jackspearco.com, I have over 120 free podcasts sitting there on marketing that can give you all the technicals. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I hope you enjoyed all the great contributions from the Expert Council. And I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast is to do your online shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online. Then you can get over to Amazon from there, and whatever you buy helps support the Survival Podcast. Doesn't matter what you buy, doesn't cost you any extra money. Isn't that cool? And if you're going to spend the money anyway, just spend it through us. Um, and you can also look at the reviews that I do on a daily basis for you. This is a product I'm bringing back probably a third or fourth time now, and it's called Monoprice Resealable Cable Ties. These are basically zip ties. Little, you know, nylon zip ties, like, you know, tie wraps is another name for them. But they're releasable. They have a little lever. You put them around something, they hold it. You push the little lever, they open back up. You can use them over and over and over and over again. The reason I'm bringing them back today is they're about seven bucks a pack. And they are, without a doubt, one of the most useful things on my homestead on an ongoing basis. What I mean by that? Let's say you said, Jack, right now, make a list of five things that you consider the most useful on your homestead you know, in the last couple of weeks. If you ask me to do that again in three or four months, some of the items on that list are going to change based on seasonality or what I'm doing, the projects I'm working on. If I'm way big into projects, you know what's going to make that list is going to be like my hand power tools, you know, my drill, my skill saw, stuff like that. And I'd probably lump that into a single thing, my, my you know, power tools. But if you ask me what's been the most useful stuff on my property in the last four weeks, I haven't done a project using my power tools. I might have pulled out the skill saw once to trim a piece of wood or something like that. So they are still incredibly useful, but they weren't useful to me over the last four weeks. They're probably going to be useful to me this weekend. i got a lot of work ahead of me. So they would get back on the list. You know what would never come off the top five list? These things. Just every time we do anything... We're using these things for something. They're very strong. They're very durable. You get a lot of, a lot of length out of the use of them. They save you money because you're not cutting them off of stuff to reuse them. And when you, when you get your hands on them, you start to realize how, how versatile they are. I have a bundle of them in both glove boxes of my vehicles. I have a bundle of them in my bug out bag. I have a bundle of them in my fishing, uh, boxes. I have a bundle of them in the boat now that I have a boat. Why wouldn't you? I'll tell you a quick story. I've told the story before, but it's it, it just shows you how versatile they are. Back when I was in the Army, there was three of us that were really close. That we, we were in barracks together. And my buddy Brad, my buddy Dean, and myself. And Dean was the only one of us that had a truck. He had a little Ford Ranger. 
And one, you know, basically it was like a community truck. Like if he wasn't using it and you needed to go somewhere, he'd just throw you the keys. So Brad and I are like, hey, man, we want to run down to PX and get some beer. And he's like, here, take the keys, throw the keys at us. And so we jump in, Brad drives, and we go hauling ass like idiot 20-year-olds in the Army do, you know, squealing tires around turners and shit like that. We get down there, we get a couple cases of beer, we come back to the barracks, and we come back in, Brad throws the keys at Dean, and Dean says, I guess I should have told y'all to uh, to uh, take it easy because of the, the temporary repair on the tie rod. And Brad and I look at each other, and Brad gets down on his belly, he goes, get the down here. And I get down and I look, and D- Dean had tie wrapped, a broken tie rod that completely came apart together with four nylon tie wraps. And it actually held. We were driving in ways we shouldn't have been driving. Brad almost killed Dean, but later we laughed about it, because when you're 20, you're stupid, and you think stuff like that's funny. And I wouldn't recommend it, but it does tell you the versatility of them. Because what I would do, if I dropped a tie rod today after having that experience, and I was like somewhere where it wasn't safe, I would tie wrap the shit out of it if that's all I had, and I would limp on down the road really slow with the four ways on until I got somewhere safer to deal with the problem. I absolutely would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't hesitate to do it. Um, for those who don't know, tie rod basically it, it, it is what connects to your your brackets on your your wheels that allow you to steer. So like if one breaks, that that wheel just kind of goes any which way. And if you're making an inside turn, and that it's not good, right? It can be very 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 bad. But I'm not recommending you do that. I am saying one of the most versatile tools you can have are, are zip ties, and you might as well have the reusable ones at seven bucks for a hundred of them. They're a little bit short, but if you need them to be longer, I just daisy chain them together. And that way, when you take them off of something, you can go back into being multiples. It's, they're just a great tool. Mono price receivable cable ties. And anytime you shop at tspaz.com when you shop online, you support survivalpodcast.com and the work that we do here. That brings us to our. YouTuber of the day. Uh, this is Albo Prepper. Albo Prepper is uh, catering mostly to drought-proof urban gardening. Here's what Albo Prepper says about his uh, YouTube channel. is for urban gardeners who enjoy the science of plant growing, not just what to do, but why we do it. This is gardening for open-minded people who want to learn. Expect to see experiments and tests, product reviews and unboxing videos, edible landscaping, and a growing focus on along with permaculture concepts. I love high-density planting, container gardening, SIP, sub-irrigated self-watering planters to deal with climate and drought issues. We need every possible tool and technique. Um, looks like a pretty cool channel. I just want to say one thing, though, in this. It's nothing to do with Albo Prepper, right? And that's A-L-B-O-P-R-E-P-P-R, Albo Prepper. Um, unboxing videos. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, a guy with a big channel with a huge following that kind of like is like sharing his life like you guys do with me on the show, and he gets something in and he's taken out of the box real quick and excited, and, and you're sharing that moment. I, I get that, but like the unboxing videos were like they show you all the sides of the box and they slowly open it and how it's packaged and they take the thing out and set it on the table and then they show you the manual. Do, do any of you watch that and actually get anything out of it? And if so, what? Tell me in the comments. So I'm not picking on Alvo Prepper. I just don't get that concept. Anyway, check out Alvo Prepper. He is in the show notes today. You can link on over to his YouTube channel. And that brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day is by Rush, one of my favorite bands. This is not one of my favorite Rush songs. I'll admit that I don't even remember. I, there's no way I've never heard this song. There's no, But I don't remember ever hearing this song, actually. The song is called Stick It Out. And... Uh, 
One of the factoids I picked up on this song, this song holds the dubious distinction of being the only Rush music video lampooned on the popular mid-90s cartoon Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, 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 Beavis, right? Okay, I will admit, I, if I ever heard this song, it's likely I heard it there. Because I will admit, in the mid-90s, that me and friends of mine would sit around, especially Saturday nights, we were hanging out at somebody's place drinking and watch Beavis and Butthead. Um, but here's what Song Facts has to say about this song. Neil Peart says it's just a Neil Peart. I guess I should. I'm not going to explain who Neil Peart is. If I need to, it won't matter to you. Neil Peart says it's just a play on the words. Really, stick it out. Be, meaning both a kind of arrogant display, stick it out, but also an endurance thing. If you have a difficult thing to endure, stick it out, and you get to the end. It was a pun on both of those, really. So again, the duality in the song is a bit leaning both ways. The sense of forbearance, of holding back, and the idea of fortitude, stick it out, you know, survive. But that was more a piece of fun. The song, I would say, both lyrically and musically verges on parody, And it's one of the things I think we just had fun with, and lyr lyrically, I certainly did too. Stick it out and spit it out and all that uh, it was just a bit of wordplay. And so I actually kind of have more affinity for the song now than I did when I first like listened to it. Um, but I'm going to give you like one of the pieces here from like chorus. Don't swallow the poison, spit it out. Don't swallow your pride, stick it out. Don't swallow your anger, spit it out. Don't swallow the lies. You know, even though it's meant to be parody, boy, that's, that is so, so relevant to right now and everything the TV's spewing out about we're in grave danger from North Korea, once again beating the drumbeats of war. Don't swallow the poison, spit it out. Don't swallow your pride. Stick it out. Don't swallow your anger. Spit it out. Don't swallow the lies. Natural reflex. Pendulum swing. You might be too dizzy to do the right thing. Trial under fire. Ultimate proof. Moment of crisis. Don't swallow the truth. Stick it out. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Trust to your instinct If it's safely restrained Lightning reactions Must be carefully trained